0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. This is episode number 22, Writing, Politics, and Conservation with Gabriella Hoffman. In today's episode, I talk with Gabriela about how a Southern California girl became a hunter, her outdoor writing career, and her podcast, District of Conservation. We also discuss how to fix the hunter PR problem.
1: Welcome, Gabriella. Thanks for coming on with me today. Uh, I want you to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. So how did you begin writing about the outdoors? And I think more importantly for me, how did a SoCal girl turn into a hunter?
2: Happy to elaborate on that and come on the podcast. Uh, First and foremost, I've always kind of had a knack for writing. I became very interested in it in high school. I had this great English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Willett, and I had her for advanced English uh, my freshman year of high school, which seems forever ago, like 14 years ago, <laughs> if I'm dating myself well. And she just had this enthusiasm about her that was so infectious. And that kind of transferred onto her students, myself included. And she made the English language, particularly grammar and po- prose and syntax, excitable and interesting to learn about. And from there, she kind of challenged us to learn about it, uh, to write well, to read as well, because you can't be a good writer unless you're an avid reader. That's definitely something that can be argued. And from there, I started to submit uh, columns to my local paper in the community I lived in in Southern California. And the following year, I started to be placed in a more official publication, the OC Register, which is the biggest daily In circulation in Southern California especially Orange County and I would get in uh, writing and incorporating vocabulary words from another English teacher Uh, so I, I had a local column and was able to get my first letters to the editor published in a major newspaper about 13 14 years ago and from there I just grew more interested in writing I found kind of my niche in political writing which I still do today Uh, Because I I think it's important that people understand the political repercussions and dynamics that also affect our industry. And having that foundation in political opinion, editorial writing, I feel, uh, helped me become a freelance outdoor writer and kind of equip me with more skills to be adept at the reporting angle of it and in profiling people's stories. So it's a culmination of a decade or so of work, um, having a curiosity to write and tell people's stories. Uh, Given my family background, I always felt that so many stories and so many interesting things are kind of hidden from public view, especially when it comes to history or uh, popular pastimes here in the United States. And I recognize that with hunting, especially not so much with fishing. Uh, I mean, there is some misrepresentation attached to it and I have no doubt if the animal rights activists could, they would go after fishing, and PETA has in many ways, they have gone after fishing as well. But hunting seems to be a routine punching bag for many organizations, for media figures, and I was curious to research more and deter and see if that's actually true. So kind of part journalist and part researcher, I was always very adamant about digging beyond the surface and seeing exactly what this hobby entails. So for me, because I've always been outdoorsy, it wasn't really a odd thing for me to pick up or to take an interest in. I grew up fishing. I picked up a fishing pole at the age of eight and became more serious about it at the age of 12 when I caught my biggest fish to date, which was a catfish that weighed about 8.9 pounds and measured in about 28 and a half inches. And I was hooked immediately from then. And I picked up my first gun at 19 when I went shooting in the hills of San Bernardino with a few friends. And for me, I was kind of ambivalent about it. I didn't really like shooting from a shotgun then. And a handgun was kind of unknown to me, but I enjoyed shooting that. And then when I moved to Virginia about seven years ago, I realized there is actually a very prevalent positive gun culture here and subsequent hunting culture because politicians go hunting to hobnob with constituents or donors. That's what I've learned. And then Virginia just has such a storied history with uh, hunting with dogs and fox hunting and things of that sort. So being in this environment kind of exposed me to opportunities to go hunting coupled with my interest to learn more about it. So that's kind of how someone like me from Southern California grew attracted to it and, and wanted to learn more about it.
1: As a to date myself a little bit uh as a teacher that's that's been teaching now for 10 years uh, I want to thank you for giving a little shout out to one of your former teachers that inspired you Uh, that definitely makes me feel good that hey maybe there's a couple former students of mine that that would do the same thing giving you opportunity um how when when you're deciding so you said it's a little bit of investigative uh for writing for you and trying to tell a little bit history about it um you know, how do you decide what you want to write about? Like, how, wh- what is it that gives you an inspiration about a topic that you're like, this is something I want to write about?
2: Yeah, I think several factors go into my decision to cover a story. And it's not difficult to turn out stories when you're, when you've been writing for many years. <laughs> you always have to subject yourself to certain things, of course, some editing, uh, perhaps rewriting certain pieces of yours. But I'm really, piqued and interested by, like I said, kind of the stories of things that are underreported, perhaps misrepresent- misrepresented individuals or regions or uh, subsets of hunting. I've been known to defend or make a credible case for, let's say, the less popular forms of hunting, just because there is a lot of inherent conservation value with many of them, particularly big game hunting. So I've, I've taken an interest in that and I actually won an award earlier this summer uh, on my reporting about the federal judges injunction in Montana that banned uh, the manage hunt for grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And for me, that left me feeling very uneasy. The fact that this judge uh, was exerting political maneuverings and, and political decision-making when he should have been an impartial nonpartisan type of person Uh, But if you read his background, it's not surprising he came to the conclusion, uh, ignoring science from the Fish and Wildlife Service and many other uh, key testimony to decide that uh, the grizzly bear in that particular region isn't recovered, and therefore you have to put back those restrictions, the Endangered Species Act restrictions on it. And having read just the findings, and these findings have superseded political lines, both, um, I think it was Obama's administration's Fish and Wildlife Service and this current administration's Fish and Wildlife Service. Have both concluded that that particular subset of bear was fully recovered and was supposed to, and and had recommendations to be delisted. So you incorporate that type of stuff as well that many people aren't aware of, and factor that into a piece and package it well and and hope people read it and see that there's a lot more gray area as you said in the beginning of the podcast to something as controversial as a managed hunt of a grizzly bear. So I, I like to cover those types of topics that can be controversial but also kind of help. Simmer down the discussion or or offer more context behind stories like that. I also do apply the same consideration when I'm covering things like the Endangered Species Act and reforms attached to that. Uh, And also, when I'm deciding whether or not to interview people or highlight their efforts, I look to see not only that perhaps they may have some traction or they're getting a lot of notice, but also not simply just looking to talk to celebrities or newsmakers, but people who have interesting stories. They're doing something really impactful and changing their community for the better, or perhaps uh, creatively disrupting the industry that they work in. And there are a lot of creative disruptors in the outdoor industry too, that I can think of really well are the people behind go wild, which is a wonderful app app and also the folks at Outdoor Access, which is a startup company here in Richmond, Virginia, that is trying to help remedy the problem of access on public lands here on the East Coast, which obviously I I have no doubt is a big concern for you and for plenty of people here on this side of the country because there is that shortage of opportunity to access and they're trying to use kind of market-based measures and means while collaborating with landowners to allow for people to access beautiful properties and go fishing or hunting there. So I look for people that are kind of disrupting things positively as well, because it's something unique. And and you, when people think of the outdoor industry, they think, okay, it's mostly these kind of older septuagenarian octogenarian types who are kind of get off my lawn, both these get off my lawn attitudes, but actually it's a lot of younger people who kind of adopt these mainstream industry approaches to, whatever they're focusing on as well. So we have a lot of innovators in the industry as well. That's something I wish more people would cover. Uh, But it's not just simply talking about people who are newsmakers or celebrities. I am very acquainted and friends with many people, um, especially some of the women who are really kind of forging a path for themselves and for other women in the industry. And they have great stories and and they're authentic and, and deserve to be told. But I also like to highlight the little guy, the little gal, Um, who's also making a difference. So like those companies, and I've interviewed a lot of people here locally in Virginia, in the DC metro area, or people all over the country in my writing and my podcast who are kind of making a difference and really should have attention drawn to them. So I try to highlight uh, a multitude of things and um, have people discover something interesting and unique that they're not reading or hearing about.
1: So in seeing some of the work that you're putting out there and everything that you're doing I've come to notice that you seem to be one hell of a hard worker and it seems like you try to have your hand in the cookie jar of of almost every consumptive based product Uh, and you just mentioned your podcast uh, district of conservation why did you decide that that was a smart move for you or why did you decide that starting a podcast was important
2: Uh, being a media consultant, because that's what I do to support myself, because you cannot, (laughs) I'm of the belief you cannot make a living simply being a writer unless you've been in the industry for many years. And it's very challenging, I would say, for uh, up and coming young communicators to do that unless they strike luck or they have uh, their name on a masthead and their employees, full time employees of, let's say, bigger uh, publications but it is very challenging to support yourself simply by writing or doing this newsmaking. So for me, um, in my business, I like to consult people not only in how to get op-eds placed or do social media strategy and things of that sort. I also try to follow the trends about what is happening in digital media landscapes and things that are emerging. And something that struck to me as kind of an emerging enterprise is the realm of podcasting. And podcasting has started to take off Very well and very quickly, actually, in the last year, I've noticed that, uh, for outdoor wilderness podcasts in the Apple podcast categories, it's becoming increasingly hard to have your podcast trend and crap, crack, excuse me, the top 100 or top 200, because so many people are starting, uh, these type of podcasts in our, in our industry because they recognize the need to, and they want to get their hands in that particular sector and perhaps become the next Steven Rinello or perhaps the next April Voki. And it's very hard to match a lot of the successful podcaster, podcasters unless you have a big name for yourself. You really tap into something unique that no one is talking about. Or you bring on interesting people who are not your typical opinion makers who are coming to talk about hunting and fishing. Or perhaps you're bringing someone who is a kind of non-endemic participant, someone from the outside who goes fishing or hunting. So I I kind of recognized the need to do it um, because I didn't want to lag behind (laughs) on podcasting like I had with social media when when social media first came out. And so I wanted to jump on that game really quickly. And the impetus behind starting the podcast came on several grounds. I wanted to see more women-led podcasts, not because I'm an uber feminist, and I think we have to destroy the so-called patriarchy or the dominance of men. I don't have that uh, opinion or worldview. I think that uh, women who are exploring hunting and fishing, however, or shooting sports, do feel a little more comfortable listening to women hosts. So it could be a little easier to ease people in to the industry if they hear voices that sound similar to them and perspectives that may be largely sympathetic towards them. But obviously, they should listen to anyone regardless of their gender. Um, but I, I, felt like I could offer kind of like a safe space and I hate using that term, but it's kind of a safe place for women who are curious to learn about hunting and fishing, perhaps to see that someone is already doing it and that they can comfortably find themselves doing similar activities as well. I also noticed that there isn't really a podcast apart from some of the major ones that really dedicates a lot of their airtime to discussing public policy matters, good or bad, kind of the nuances. Uh, about legislation coming from Washington, D.C. or in various uh, state legislatures. So given my political background, I was like, maybe I should jump on board this because no one is really talking about this. And I also try to uh, interview interesting storytellers and newsmakers to kind of people who aren't really – high on someone's radar, people who are emerging or people who have done a lot, but they're kind of more behind the scenes and to get them talking about things. So I had a lot of things going into my thought process for starting a podcast, but I really wanted to kind of use the platform I had to highlight interesting people to talk about public policy matters and issues that are relevant, not only to those of us who live here, but I think to the country at large. And I didn't want to simply podcast to pat myself on the back. I would have, not given it a name separate from my own personal name if I didn't have that goal in mind, because I think a lot of people go into podcasting and it's an eponymous uh, name. They, they, they call themselves like the something, something show named after them. And I didn't want to be that. I wanted to, to be greater than myself. And I, that's why I, I gave the podcast district of conservation as a name, just because it was kind of a play on district of Columbia and that so much of the conservation ethics and laws that we adhere to and try to subscribe to emanate from federal policies here in Washington, D.C. So it was an interesting play on words. And like I said, I kind of wanted to just help fill the void that I was noticing in, in certain podcasting. And it's been fun in the, the year or so that I've been doing it. And I have a lot of more exciting guests coming on the pipeline very soon. So it's, it's fun and it's a, it, an exciting medium. I think more people are going to do it. And it's good if we have more outdoor podcasts and see more people podcasting, women, millennials, anyone. Um, It could be more adult onset hunters as well. It'd be good to see more people do that. So it's it's an exciting medium and there's an interesting future behind it. And I think more people will want to listen and consume those more. And I hope uh, people do check out my podcast if they're interested as well.
1: Yeah, it's something that that I've checked out, uh, only a couple episodes in, but it's definitely something that um, I've enjoyed in the the couple of that that I've been listening to. And, you know, as far as, you know, why I started this podcast, uh, you know, I'm a teacher. Uh, My sort of calling is to educate. And and that's why I started Conserve the Wild was to try to educate people on conservation and, and hunting's role within conservation. And I looked at this as just another outlet for that. Uh, it seems that we have this sort of echo chamber when it comes to social media and we only really want to connect with people that are you know within our own views and when I looked at the different podcasts that were out there I guess I didn't see that echo chamber for me so I wanted to be able to put my ideas out there and have people on that have that share my ideas and yet at the same time also maybe conflict some of those ideas uh just so that I can try to educate more people with both sides of every argument that, that can be put out there in regards to hunting and conservation.
2: Yeah. There are a lot of interesting perspectives. People believe that everything is just kind of this one size fits all thinking or, or, uh, thought process that goes on in the industry. A lot of people will have different preferences on their hunting styles or fishing styles. They may differ politically. They may differ regionally, so a lot of people have unique perspectives. So that's that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, and, and that's something, you know, you brought up PETA earlier and, and you know, and you just brought up now having different hunting styles, uh, being, growing up as a hunter in Pennsylvania, we are not allowed to bait anything that, that we want to hunt. Uh, you're not allowed, you're not allowed to bait anything. So that's not something I've participated in, but I've talked to enough people that grew up in areas where, and and learned to hunt in areas where baiting is allowed for deer or bear. And I, by talking to them, I understand the reasoning behind it. Um, While it still might not be something I actively participate in, because I got that information from them, I'm now able to understand that process. And it's not just, uh, no, you should never do it. There are certain times when it's actually beneficial to conservation, to hunt, bear over bait, uh, so that you can identify the animal. So, you know, it, it makes sense, but only if you actually have that information at hand and someone actually explains to you the purpose for it.
2: Yeah, I try, I tend to have a ecumenical approach when it comes to hunting because I am only fairly new to it myself. I really have no preference about people's style, as long as they're doing it ethically and legally. But I think more people should have kind of an ecumenical approach. If someone prefers to hunt private land or small game, I say all power to them. And one shouldn't really take precedence over another or be regarded as the more superior type of hunting.
1: I agree 100%. So you mentioned that, uh, you know, you've just been recently started hunting. Uh, So how's that been going for you? Let's talk about that for a second.
2: Sure. This will be, this fall in particular, will be my third season of hunting. Uh, I think much of the hunting that goes on here in Virginia is not going to really take place for me until perhaps later in November. I may go on a dove hunt at the end of September, I'm not sure yet, but there's a strong likelihood I will, but I feel that a lot of the opportunities I will have to go hunting. Actually, I take that back. I'm probably going to do another hog hunt in uh, Georgia this late October, Um, and then potentially some deer hunting for rifle season in later November around Thanksgiving time. Uh, But I'm trying to do more so of sticking to one type of hunting, primarily rifle hunting or firearms hunting, I have done most mu- muzzleloader and I had a very nice six point buck in my crosshairs during muzzleloader season broadside for about 30 seconds. And perhaps because I was nervous to see it and got shaky and was just all excited. I took a clean miss on it. Thankfully it was not harmed, uh, but I kind of pinch myself now that I'm saying like thinking that, oh gosh, I could have harvested that. I had it right perfectly in my, in my crosshairs and I didn't take, the right type of uh, trigger pool. And I, I didn't execute properly on that. And that's, I think a mistake that's okay to make when you're learning how to hunt. And I kind of relish those um, little blunders as well. I didn't harm it. Um, it made me want to prepare even better because you have to do so much preparation, not so much with having to go on insane hikes or to really adopt this crazy lifestyle or, or health regimen, but, You do have to practice um, sighting in your firearm. You have to get familiar, uh, being comfortable looking in your scope and not flinching. And sometimes I have that problem. I'm happy to admit that. I think anyone who's new to hunting does. And um, when I first started in my first season back in fall of 2017, I had a very good season, I guess, with what you would call a successful season. My first trip ever into the field. Uh, I went upland bird hunting, and I harvested my first rooster pheasant, a chucker, and two quails, which was unheard of, from what I was told. And people were like, "You are, were really good for someone who was the first time in their, in the field, and and uh, listening to instructions and and having fun." So I I paid attention, I listened to all instructions, and I was able to take very good kill shots and harvest those initial wild game species that I had never harvested before. And it was really exciting. But also at the same time, you kind of feel sadness for having taken a life. But for me, I knew that I didn't do anything wrong, that many people have been doing this and it was exciting. And you could say that it leaves you feeling hooked, wanting to do more, not so much out of bloodlust or any crazy feelings of that nature. But it's an interesting activity with camaraderie and it was a lot more simpler than I thought it would be. And I, I think I still have to improve my wing shooting skills a lot more because being left-handed, I sometimes struggle with having to force my shell to shoot right-handed. So that's something I'm trying to improve upon. I also went on a duck hunt in early 2018 when we had the bomb cyclone here on the coastal part of the Atlantic in Virginia, Maryland, and North Carolina. And I was able to harvest a ruddy duck, which was really cool. And that was really exciting to sit in a blind for... An extended period of time. See birds flying over, snow geese, different types of ducks um, close to the ocean. And with a married couple friend of mine who took me out and the duck guide that we used. He was a really fascinating guy and put us on the board for quite a bit of ducks, um, despite kind of the inclement weather that we were faced with. And I went on a turkey hunt a few weeks later than that. I think or a month or two later than that because spring season is April. And we didn't get any turkeys. I heard gobbles. But I would say my first season from 2017 to 2018 was successful. I would, This recent season, 2018 to 2019, I wasn't successful much in harvesting anything, but I found it to be kind of a season of growth and learning because when you're new and you're going into this kind of head-on and people are guiding you and mentoring you, a lot of it can be very overwhelming. Sometimes there is that pressure to feel... And compel you to have to make a kill shot, and sometimes it's best not to. And so I've learned, and I I bet people who started younger had a lot of misses growing up too. So it's a perfectly normal thing to experience and lament not taking clean shots or not taking kill shots that led to the successful harvesting of an animal. And like I had mentioned earlier, I went muzzleloader hunting for deer, didn't get it, but. I got to see a deer perfectly in my crosshair, sit in a blind for a long period of time, which I hadn't done much before and just kind of absorb my surroundings and enjoy just what kind of nature's offerings were for us at the time. I went uh, Turkey hunting on the last day of spring season in Virginia. And we saw some hens and some others, but they were not shootable obviously, because you're not supposed to do that in Virginia for ethical and also legal reasons. So seeing turkeys kind of flying and acting and learning when they're roosting and in the trees and not in the trees, more so ground level was really exciting too. And I really didn't get much time in the field just because my business started to grow and I only got to go out hunting maybe two or three times. So that was a mistake I made. I probably could have had more successful days had I gone to the field more, I think. Uh, but this year I'm hoping and I, I have already started my hunting season. I I had a clean miss of a hog that I tried to shoot in Georgia um, a few weeks ago. But I'm hoping when I go back in a few weeks that I'll be more successful. But I've already gotten my start. I think I'm going to have more time in the field. And I'm hoping that I can get close to bagging my first deer or perhaps uh, replaying kind of the success I've had with upland bird or waterfowl hunting. So we'll see what happens. But I'm going to try to be in the field more so this year. And a lot of people have asked me to set aside some time to accompany them to the field so I can finally get a deer or finally get something of more consequence.
1: That's great. I really hope you don't fret too much on uh, a couple misses. Uh, Any any hunter who says that they have never missed um, is lying. So (laughs) that's uh, (laughs) definitely a part of hunting. Uh, yes, and it's part of that part of that learning curve as well. So um, it's great to see the great to hear that you're still interested and you're still uh, trying to go out and and make another make another attempt. Uh, so you also mentioned that you know your media strategist and consultant uh, that's your sort of main business at this point. Hunting and conservation right now it, it has a PR problem. Um, so what? what do you think, if you were king for a day, what would you do to try to fix that PR problem for the industry to be able to showcase what hunters contribute to conservation?
2: It's a very interesting question. That process is kind of a multi-pronged, challenging ordeal, but I don't think it's impossible if you have the right strategy in place. I think it would take a few things to successfully do that if I had the ability to to do that for the day in a greater capacity Um, because I'm not consulting full disclosure. I'm not really consulting the bigger companies. I've consulted some smaller ones and I work with some nonprofits that are emerging and I've talked to people and have friends in bigger entities. But um, if I were able to consult these bigger companies that were struggling to reach out to people, I would recommend to them several things. I think they should find good influencers if they haven't already who Are not out for the fame but are more educational perhaps those who come from unique backgrounds whether they are women or those who grew up in a more urban setting i think that's extremely important to do Um, and it can be done very tastefully and and without looking like it's pandering Uh, there are many people of all different walks of life that are picking up hunting or taking an interest in it so i think it's important that um, they highlight those folks who are doing it share their story through videos Um, and a similar corresponding campaign that gets it out there to many people. I am trying to think what efforts off the top of my head. There have been several organizations that have done a very good job at that recently, uh, but there are too many to list uh, that I can uh, incorporate into this discussion. But I think some companies are recognizing that they're investing in very high-tech tools to showcase people who are living the lifestyle. I also think more hunters and people who at least can offer and outline the positives of hunting need to be more comfortable going on TV. It's not enough to have people who perhaps may have just gone trophy hunting or big game hunting uh, talk about their perspective. But I also think it's important to have wildlife biologists who understand what goes on into hunting, how much they play a role in conserving resources, wildlife habitat, things of that sort. Um, And having just people who are, who make it a career. Um, These scientists, these experts, ranchers, uh, farmers, people who have to kind of navigate all these different types of roadblocks and conservation challenges to kind of have them talk about how hunters work with them or how they as hunters and people who understand hunters and the economic value that they have and kind of the purposeful impact that they have in regions or cities is important, And I would like to see more people, I, if I had the ability to, I would love to place more people on TV to talk about this um, endemic and non-endemic outlets, especially the non-traditional, non-endemic mainstream sources out there, if they're willing to hear people. I know NPR did a very good piece last year in spring of 2018, giving fair and due diligence to hunting and lamenting over the fact that a diminishing number of hunting participants actually spells doom for conservation at large. And I thought they did an excellent piece. I wish more media outlets would do that. And if I had the ability to, I would love to place more people in those types of outlets to be comfortable about their lifestyle and to talk about what they do. So I think some outlets would be open to that. And I think it's important that, like you had mentioned earlier, people step outside the echo chamber to talk to people who may not agree, but are not completely disapproving of hunting or sporting. Uh, in that regard. And I think a third thing I would do is um, help people, let's say, prepare to uh, go talk to their lawmakers. I think that's extremely important because the animal rights activists and a lot of these preservationist types are very organized and they have and pull at the purse strings of their lawmakers in many instances. Uh, But hunters, I think, are starting to make gains in that regards. But for hunters to kind of get their views out there and to make it known that they vote and that they are greatly affected by decisions that politicians in states, localities, and in the federal government make onto them. I think uh, making themselves known to people of influence is extremely important so that they can convince them of the lifestyle, make it known that hunters are constituents too, and, and to get them to think Uh, beyond conventional wisdom about hunting. I think that's extremely important, and it's also good for wielding influence and also changing the media narrative on hunting as well.
1: Those are all tremendous ideas. Um, Definitely a little more uh, thought-provoking than what some of my friends and family, when we discuss these kind of things. Um, If if it was me, I think the, the one thing that gets flowed around a lot with my friends and family is it would be if I, if, we were, if I was a king for a day, I would love to require everyone to take a modified hunter education course that all the new hunters have to take um, that really focuses hard on the impact to conservation. I think that just allowing people to understand uh, how much of an impact hunters have on conservation, as you brought up, uh, I, if they really understood that, I think they would be a little more okay with the idea of hunting.
2: Yes, and the proof is in the pudding as to the economic impact that hunters have. It's publicly advertised the financial impact they have through excise taxes under the Pittman-Robertson Act and also the Dingle johnson Amendment for fishing and tackle. And it, it goes to show what type of a footprint they have, and I think more people are starting to report on that. And that could also be, I think, a fourth way that people – Uh, kind of change the narrative on hunters and their contributions to society at large because if you put out that statistic which is factual the minimum 60 percent in excise taxes come from hunters and anglers primarily hunters and people who purchase guns I think a lot of people will think differently and be like oh boy we're maybe simply just freeloading while these people are putting in the grunt work and their purchases speak volumes as to what they're doing and Obviously, simply purchasing something doesn't make you a conservationist. It kind of puts you on the path towards being a conservationist, but it should propel people to become more involved, boots on the ground in various organizations, uh, helping at kids camps and things of that sort. So it's, yeah, there's a lot of information signaling that hunters play a critical role in conservation and don't get the proper accolades for doing so. And that's what I try to communicate in my writings. In any interview I do with public speaking engagements, I I partake, in, I partake in, excuse me, and just really kind of educate people and say, like, this is all for you for the taking. Be, have an open mind. Don't denigrate people because it's you never know what you could have in common with them and and see what could happen and, and the, the value and the goodness that comes from being outdoors and being one with nature.
1: Yeah, I mean the the proof is in the pudding. If you look at at the ways that wildlife has rebounded, and it's yeah pretty much solely from hunters. I mean, the Boone and Crockett Club was was founded by Teddy Roosevelt, who was I mean talk about one of the biggest advocates for hunting uh, there was for our nation at that time. I mean, you know, we have the resurgence of buffalo and uh, white-tailed deer and turkey and elk and all these animals are coming back, and the ones who really decided we need to uh, protect these animals in a scientific way uh, were hunters. You know, if it wasn't for the hunting community, I, I would hate to see where all this wildlife would be.
2: That's true. At the turn of the century before the 1900s happened, I think people realize that the overt commercialization of wildlife spelled doom for hunting prospects in the future and led to a lot of wanton waste and just this horrific outcome. And obviously, it, given what we've, I think all of us have read, or those of us who've initially read into kind of the historical context, leading to the regeneration of many wildlife species, particularly waterfowl, uh, Rocky Mountain elk wild turkeys and other species, white-tailed deer species that are commonly hunted, it is because, like you said, the efforts of hunters who recognized that whatever they were doing in the past was wrong, and that they had to adopt this more conservationist attitude when it came to wildlife management. They simply, they they surely did want to rectify the problem and took the task at hand to change things and, and change kind of the sentiment attached to how uh, wildlife was managed and how people pursued wildlife creatures, um, particularly wild game species, of course, that people consumed and, and, and also enjoyed admiring as well, uh, when they weren't able to successfully hunt them as well. And the history shows that um, you can't deny it. And I, I hope more people read so into the context behind that. And uh, even beyond Teddy Roosevelt, he certainly was a pioneer in that. But there are many others um, like him. I think Aldo Leopold, which I have not read much of his work. I do want to read his famous text. Um, at some point, and and some others, I've been bookmarking lots of books, and I'm behind on my reading list for the year. But there are lots of conservation minded books about these pioneers of conservation that have done tremendous work, kind of laying the groundwork for those of us now in the present day to hopefully carry out or to uh, explore more so in the present day when it comes to wanting to preserve things or conserve land and wildlife species. But yes, there, there's so much out there. And I think it's just a matter of people who opine on issues or reporters or newsmakers to dig out that information and put it out there for the public to interpret and absorb.
1: As someone who's read a lot of Aldo Leopold's work, uh, you will enjoy it. His ability to draw you into his experiences solely with his words is, is pretty amazing. Uh, We are now on season two for this podcast here. And a new thing that we've started is a call to action Uh, and right now, uh, I'd like to end that conversation with our conversation with the call to action. And I want to give you a chance to let the listeners know something important that maybe we missed while in our earlier part of our conversation.
2: A call to action. Goodness. Hmm. There's a lot, but I would recommend for anyone listening, especially at the beginning of the coming year in early 2020, I would encourage your listeners to see what potential hunting legislation or fishing legislation is going to be considered in your state legislatures. I know you guys in Pennsylvania have the Sunday hunting bill coming up, and I hope that does get passed. Uh, But a lot of states out there have dabbled into some very bad legislation that directly eats at the hunting lifestyle. So I encourage people who want to get more politically active or even just sound off on issues and and meet with their lawmakers to see what is potentially being mulled in your state legislature and if something bad comes up to organize your friends and others who are constituents in a locality or at the state at large and help defeat certain bills in committee or in a like a full uh, legislature type vote. Uh, It's better to defeat bills in committee, that way they're not subjected to a full chamber vote. But I think it's important to, to watch and monitor because we saw in many states this past year, earlier this year especially, uh, New Mexico, for instance, New York, California is soon banning predator hunting, trapping and other types of hunting that spur a lot of economic development and uh, supply a lot of industries like uh, fur bearing and, and sale of fur, which a lot of people in immigrant communities actually make their livelihoods off of. Uh, but it's important to pay attention to what happens in your state legislature, much like it is federally. Um A lot of the times you're not really going to see much, but I challenge people uh, for the coming months because they're going to focus on other things, but if being more ecumenical and and kind of adopting this mindset that an attack on one type of hunting can eventually erode most, if not other types of hunting as well. So I challenge people to pay attention to what goes on, to write letters to the editors, to organize civilly and and meet with your lawmakers and get their ear um, and encourage them if they're not already in support of hunting to, Uh, vote against bad measures that erode at the hunting lifestyle so it's important to pay attention I think that's something to to do and I think anytime you have an opportunity to write a correspondence to your paper whether it's a local one or a state one or regional one it's important to to do that and to kind of offer a positive outlook on hunting instead of always being on the defense I think being on the offense more is important when you're trying to make a case for hunting the moral case for hunting I should say
1: yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, it's definitely easier now more than ever to contact your representatives to yes. let your voice be heard. There's so many organizations out there that uh, with just a couple clicks in your address, it can, you know, it sends out letters on your behalf. But uh, in we interviewed last season, uh, one of our state senators about the Sunday hunting bill that Pennsylvania has. And he mentioned to us uh, that one of the best ways to really make your voice heard is to actually personally make a phone call. I know that takes a little more effort on people's part, but uh, it can, if it's giving more of a impact, then, you know, it's going to let your voice be heard a little bit better.
2: Yes. There are so many tools out there now. I think most conservation groups have a portal for specific issues or to reach members of Congress federally or Senate's senators. Uh, or those even in the state senate or house of delegates or house of representatives so there are lots of portals now you there's no excuse to not contact people (laughs) since it's all out in the open and available for you to simply click a lot of the times they have pre-written messages that say i encourage you to vote against this bill 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 da 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 and then it does it for you automatically and then you just sign your name on it
1: very simple well, Gabrielle, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, I really want to encourage—I I really want to encourage everyone to take a look at the work that you've done and and listen to your podcast. Um, It's—I really like your take on a lot of the topics. Uh, you, you're definitely well informed and well researched.
0: That'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Gabriella for joining me. I find it refreshing to talk with someone as passionate about conservation as I am. Make sure to check out her podcast, District of Conservation, at the link in the episode notes. There are so many different ways to participate in outdoor activities, and I encourage each of you to find your own way to become involved. Until next week, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and share this podcast with a friend. And as always, stay wild.